Luke chapter 23, we will begin this morning our text at verse 33 and following. I think I indicated earlier that it would be verse 49. We'll actually go through verse 48 this morning. Well, there's no doubt that when we discuss the central theme of Christianity and of Christian theology, we come to the message of the cross. Often we will refer to all that has transpired in the person and the work of Jesus Christ as the cross, using of the the entire redemptive work, his suffering and his death, simply as the cross. In our text this morning, we are dealing with the actual event of Jesus' crucifixion and his death. It is interesting as we read through the accounts of of His crucifixion and death in all the Gospel writings, there's not much here in the way of dramatic flair. There's not much here in the details of the the particulars of the agony that Jesus Christ endured. And although there are many who have gone to great length to describe the pains and the sufferings of a crucifixion, our Gospel accounts don't give us that. The emphasis in the Gospel accounts is not that the degree and the nature of that suffering, the emphasis in the gospel accounts is that he did endure these things. The fact of his crucifixion and of his death. Nothing in the way here, in the, as you read through the gospel accounts, not much in the way of theological commentary. Explaining the details of, of why this event is taking place. Just in simple terms... The facts. Just the facts. Just the event described to us here. Begin reading with me here in Luke chapter 23, verse 33, and through verse 48. When they came to the place called the skull, there they crucified him. There it is. You know, just the commentators that I've read throughout this past week, what restraint, what restraint the gospel writers when all they said was they crucified him. There they crucified him. And the criminals, one on the right and the other on the left. But Jesus was saying, Father, forgive them, for they do not know what they are doing. And they cast lots, dividing up his garments among themselves. And the people stood by, looking on. And even the rulers were sneering at him, saying, He saved others, let him save himself, if this is the Christ of God, his chosen one. The soldiers also mocked him, coming up to him, offering him sour wine, and saying, If you are the king of the Jews, save yourself. Now there was also an inscription above him, This is the King of the Jews. And one of the criminals who were were hanged there was hurling abuse at him, saying, Are you not the Christ? Save yourself and us. But the other answered and rebuking him, said, Do you not even fear God, since you are under the same sentence of condemnation? And we indeed are suffering justly, for we are receiving what we deserve for our deeds. But this man has done nothing wrong. 
And he was saying, Jesus, remember me when you come into come in your kingdom. And he said to him, truly, I say to you today, you shall be with me in paradise. It was now about the sixth hour and darkness fell over the whole land until the ninth hour. Because the sun was obscured, and the veil of the temple was torn in two. And Jesus, crying out with a loud voice, said, Father, into your hands I commit my spirit. Having said this, he breathed his last. Now when the centurion saw what had happened, he began praising God, saying, Certainly, this man was innocent. And all the crowds who came together for this spectacle when they observed what had happened, began to return, beating their breasts. Coaches will often speak of the fundamentals of a game. For example, a football coach will emphasize the necessity of the fundamentals of football, which would be simple things like blocking and tackling and Staying in your assigned positions. And oftentimes words of praise will be cast upon a team. And those words will be something like, this is a team that is very sound in the fundamentals of the game. They don't make mistakes regarding tackling and regarding blocking. It can be also applied to other sports as well. The fundamentals. And always the call is getting back to the fundamentals and sometimes there will be the criticism placed upon one's own team after a poor performance. And the coach will often say, we just need to get back here to the fundamentals of blocking and tackling and those type things. Legendary NFL football coach Vince Lombardi once after the Green Bay Packers had either lost a game or had won it in a very sloppy manner, gathered his team together the next day for football practice and he huddled the team together and he held the football up and he said, this is a football. That's getting back to the fundamentals. That's getting back to the basics of what they are doing. As we look at this text today, we are driven here to the fundamentals of Christianity. We are looking here at the basics of what the Christian message, of what the Christian gospel is all about. When you consider the crucifixion and the death of Jesus Christ, this is as fundamental as it gets. I just have to honestly say my own sense of un a sense of unworthiness and weakness in the ability to convey the, the weight of what's given to us in this message. There's much more here than I could possibly give in the next 30 to 45 minutes. And I could spend much more than one message on this text and going and considering different angles of this text. But I want us to stay, as I believe the gospel writers stay, and give us the account very simple and very basic. And so as you hear this message this morning, as you leave this place this morning, you may come to the realization as you get into your car and you drive home, you know, Randy didn't tell me anything new this morning. <laughs> I didn't hear anything new. I know all that stuff. 
But at the same time, I hope that we will not say, I heard nothing profound. Because what would make it profound is not my ability to speak, but would be the content of what I speak, and that is the message of Jesus' crucifixion and death. That is a profound thought and a profound reality in and of itself. So we come today to this text and we find that it's a very fundamental message. If you look at your three points as you have in your bulletin insert, it's very fundamental. Most of us have seen an outline or that thought expressed somewhere else. It's not profound in that sense. But again, to believe that the weight of what we consider of the death of Jesus Christ, the cross of Jesus Christ as the fundamental message, it is essential that we affirm these truths. There are those truths in the Scripture that are absolutely essential that we embrace and that we affirm as the people of God. There are things in the Scriptures that we can debate. And we can leave this place on different positions. There are other things in the Scripture that are not open to debate. And that if we leave on different pages on some of these essentials, folks, we are leaving with the Gospel or without the Gospel. And so we come this morning to consider the essential affirmations of the cross of Jesus Christ. First of all, what we see here is a sovereign work. We see here a sovereign work, a work that is overseen, a work that is in fact under the divine control of the hand of God. Now how else could we as the people of God look at these events and not be overcome with a sense of of sorrow and a sense of grief that this has been done to the one whom we love. This has been done against our Lord and our Savior Jesus Christ. And we can look to this text and we can have times of sorrow and grief at these events as the people of God, but we also rest fully assured that there is a sovereign purpose, there is a sovereign plan that is being acted out here, that Jesus has not all of a sudden become a helpless victim in the hands of evil men. Wicked men are not in control here. God is. God is accomplishing His work. First of all, we see that this was a work that was foretold in the Scriptures. This isn't new. As these events transpired, these were things that were predicted in the Old Testament Scriptures with the very simple words of verse 33, and they crucified Him. There, they crucified Him. Psalm 22, verse 16. They pierced my hands and my feet. Isaiah 53, verse 5. He was pierced through for our transgressions. Zechariah 12, 10. They will look on me whom they have pierced. Which, again, John has just brought to our attention from John 19. 
crucifixion of Jesus foretold throughout the Old Testament Scriptures. God's plan. God's redemptive work being carried out. Verse 33, And the criminals, one on the right and the other on the left, being crucified with Him. And Isaiah 53, verse 12. Look there with me quickly. It's referenced in places even as the accounts are given in the New Testament. Isaiah 53, And we'll come back to Isaiah 53, incidentally. There I will allot him a portion with the great and will divide the beauty with the strong because he poured out himself to death and what? And was numbered with the transgressors. A criminal, one on the left and another one on the right. Numbered with the transgressors. And Jesus applies it in Luke chapter 22, verse 37. For I tell you that this which is written must be fulfilled in me. And he was numbered with transgressors. Jesus himself quoting Isaiah 53. Verse 12. Jesus, were, Jesus was saying in verse 34, Father, forgive them. Isaiah 53, verse 12 again. He was numbered with the transgressors, yet he himself bore the sin of many. And what? And interceded for the transgressors. Here again, by the words of Jesus, interceding. Father, forgive them. They don't know what they're doing. Interceding for the transgressors. They cast lots in verse verse 34. Cast lots, dividing up his garments. Psalm 22, verse 18. Psalm 22, verse 18, They divide my garments among them, and for my clothing they cast lots. Verse 35, The rulers sneering at him, saying, Look at the words there in, in verse 35. Looking on, they were sneering, saying, He saved others, let him save himself. If this is the Christ of God, His chosen one. Psalm 22, verses 7 and 8. All who see me, see me sneer at me. They separate with, with the lip. They wag the head saying, Commit yourself to the Lord. Let Him deliver Him. Let Him rescue Him because He delights in Him. Those words offered as mocking in the psalm, but also against Jesus Christ. And then the soldiers mocking Him and offering Him sour wine from Psalm 69 21, which Neil read earlier, they offered to him sour wine. So we have the various, and this isn't all, this is just from the accounts of Luke. You could go to the other Gospels, find more details, and find more Old Testament prophecies fulfilled. So this is foretold in Scripture, and evidence to us this is a, this is a sovereign work. This is God's 
plan being executed as He has designed it. But also, we see that it is affirmed by signs. There are great signs that take place here. Verse 44. It was about the sixth hour, which is noon. Twelve noon. It was about the sixth hour and darkness fell over the whole land until the ninth hour. So from 12 noon to 3 in the afternoon, there's darkness in the land. Three hours for those who were there who all of a sudden compelled to consider what's going on here. To consider something of the gravity of their own deeds against this Christ. That's what's taking place here is more than just an ordinary event. Is more than just another criminal experiencing his just due. As darkness fell upon the land for three hours. Verse 45, it tells us there that the veil, the veil of the temple was, was torn in two. It was rent. And Matthew and Mark tell us that actually this took place at the moment of Jesus' death. Luke's not so concerned many times as we know about the particular chronology of events. Just that these events do take place. But at the moment of Jesus' death, that that curtain that separated the holy place from the holy of holies, at a time when there would have been priests actually in that place, Witnessing the tearing of this curtain before their very eyes from top to bottom as a testimony that access to God is now open because of the death of Jesus Christ. That's the significance that the writer of Hebrews places on it in Hebrews chapter 10 verses 19 and 20. That we have access. We have access through The blood, the shed blood of Christ. And it was testified to those, even the very enemies of God, in the temple of God, testified before them. This this veil is shredded in half. Affirmed by signs. But also we see here that this event was concluded with a shout. Look at verse 46. You're talking about a man who has been beaten to a pulp. You're talking about a man who has hung on a cross for about six hours. You're talking about a man who has received no comfort. And you tell me what happens when a person is having the very life sucked out of them. They get to the end, folks. They don't yell. If anything, they go out with a whimper. But what do we see here? We see here in the text of verse verse 46. And Jesus crying out with a loud voice. This is not a weak, whimpering lament. This is the cry of a victor. With a loud voice, he cries out... Father, into your hands I commit my spirit. Not life being sucked from him, being drained from him, life being yielded up, 
Offering of himself, giving up of his life at the appropriate time. And as John says, when the scriptures were fulfilled. Then I commit my hands into your spirit. Into your spirit. My spirit into your hands, I'm sorry. So we have the scriptures fulfilled. The Old Testament scriptures fulfilled. We have the affirming signs of darkness for three hours. And for this veil being rent. And we have this victorious shout being exclaimed at the, at the dying moment of Jesus Christ. This is not the picture of evil men being in control. This is the picture of a sovereign work of God to its completion. It's a sovereign work. God is in control. Christ is in control here. Yes, we sorrow in the horrors of this event, and rightly we should, but at the same time we rejoice in God's sovereign rule over these affairs that Jesus is not a victim, He is a victor. Accomplishing God's redemptive work by the laying down of His life. And we proclaim that because of this work of Jesus, this sovereign work of God that we have accessed with God the Father through the death of His Son, the Lord Jesus Christ. It's a sovereign work. Secondly, we see it's a substitutionary work. We are reminded again in our text, just as we were a couple of weeks ago as we looked at Jesus' trial before Pilate. Jesus was without sin. It was expressed by Pilate up to five times in different ways. This man has done nothing guilty of death. I find no fault in him. Five times it's recorded in scriptures that he said some form of declaring the innocence of Christ. To make it very clear in the minds of all who are there, this man is innocent. He has done nothing either against the laws of men nor against the laws of God. And that reality is affirmed by two others in our text here today. First of all, we see it in the repentant criminal. Verse 41. Back up to verse 40. But the other answered, the other criminal who was crucified, rebuking the first. And he said, Do you not even fear God since you are under the same sense of condemnation? And we indeed are suffering justly, for we are receiving what we deserve for our deeds. But this man has done nothing wrong. Here he is. Once again, Jesus vindicated. He's done no wrong. And then the Roman centurion, as he witnesses the death in verse 47, when the centurion saw what had happened, he began praising God, saying, Certainly this man was innocent. It's the consistent record of the scripture. And interesting enough, we find the consistent testimony of those who opposed Christ and those who brought accusation against Christ knew their accusations were lies. They knew it because they couldn't find any truth to bring against him. There was no guilt, no fault, no sin to be found in him. Perfect obedience to the law of God. So then, 
Why is this God's sovereign plan? Why is God's sovereign plan for an innocent man to die? Why does God orchestrate such a plan? Why doesn't God bring us to this point and deliver His one if He is innocent? Why doesn't He? Well, the reason is, as the Scripture tells us, He died not for His own sins, but He died for the sins of others. He had the sins of others placed upon Him, particularly the sins of those who believe. His own people. That's why Christ died. It was a substitutionary work. It was dying in the stead of someone else. So his death then was not so much the work of evil men, although men bear the guilt of their sins against Christ. No doubt about that. They bear the guilt for their sins. They are responsible for their sins against Christ committed even in these actions here. But, ultimately, what we see here is the work and the plan of God to bring salvation and deliverance for His people. Jesus died so God's people would not have to. Substitutionary work. The Old Testament record, Isaiah 53, 6. You just can't get away from Isaiah 53, can we? Isaiah 53, 6. The Lord laid on Him the iniquity of us all. Verse 10 of Isaiah 53. But the Lord was pleased to crush Him. Pleased to crush Him. In the New Testament, Acts chapter 2, verse 23, this man who was delivered over by the predetermined plan and the foreknowledge of God. Romans chapter 8, verse 32, he who did not spare his own son, but delivered him over for us. That's why he died. It was for us. And then the the context there of Romans 8.31, if God is for us, who is against us? God has done this. God has given us His dear Son, His only Son, the Lord Jesus Christ, to die in our place. If God is for us in that way, who is against us? It makes no difference. So Jesus' death was... For us, a substitutionary work, taking the place of the sinner, having no sin of his own. So that we might receive every blessing that God would pour out upon his son, all the blessings that we receive in Christ Jesus. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, through whom we have received every spiritual blessing. Ephesians chapter one, verse three. Every spiritual blessing that we have, every blessing that we have from God is through Christ. So the question that we have to deal with is, have you seen your need for such substitutionary work? Have you recognized the fact that Jesus, in fact, needed to die if you were to have a chance to be saved? You recognize that 
apart from this substitutionary work, you are still in your sin. And unless you have embraced Jesus' substitutionary death as your own, you are still in your sin. It's not a benefit that's that's given to all of humanity just by virtue of the fact that it happened. It is a benefit only to those who believe. Only to those who recognize that they are alienated from God, separated from God because of their sin. Only those who are willing to look and to say, Jesus Christ has taken upon Himself not only the scorn of men, but even the wrath of God. So that I might be saved. That's my only hope. Have you recognized your need of that? As people of God, we rejoice that Jesus has taken our guilt and taken our punishment. We can look at the cross of of Jesus Christ and we can rejoice in that. That was my penalty that he paid. Not, Not the fury of men. Although we can deserve that as well. But the wrath of divine justice against him. As we sang just a few moments ago in that hymn, stricken, smitten, and afflicted. Many hands were raised to wound him. None would interpose to save. But the deepest stroke that pierced him was the stroke that justice, capital J, that justice gave. There's the, there's the deepest wound. And that was what we had coming to us. The justice of God coming upon us in our sin. Met in Christ. A substitutionary work. Many scoff at the notion. But for us who believe, it's the power of the gospel. Then we see it as a saving work. You don't get much more basic than this. You don't get much more fundamental. That people are saved. People are delivered because Jesus died. That's pretty basic, isn't it? People really are saved. Really are converted. Really are spared the eternal wrath of God because Jesus died. And the nature of Jesus' work is demonstrated even in His last hours toward one who is there dying with Him. Here you have a guilty criminal who from the other gospel writers, it seems initially that both of these criminals were were throwing their insults at Jesus and mocking Him. But something begins to change in this man. People talk about the insistence that we would hold that saving faith has works say well look at the 
criminal on the cross. Saving faith. He didn't have any accompanying works. I beg to differ. Not works that save. That work, but works that are an evidence that in fact He is saved. We begin to see a change taking place in this man. Verse 40 this other criminal continues to hurl his remarks. And in verse 40, the other answers, and he rebukes him. Do you not even fear God? This man's beginning to weigh eternity. Why is he beginning to weigh eternity? Another man in the exact same place, seeing the exact same circumstances, seeing the exact same Christ, and he's no more concerned about his soul and Lord God than he was three years before. And this man, do you not fear God since you're under the same sentence of condemnation? You're going to die, friend, and you're going to see God. There are no atheists in the grave, folks. There may be some in the foxholes. There are none in the grave. You're going to die. Don't you fear God? And then... He declares in verse 41... His own sin... We receive what we deserve. And he confesses the sinlessness, the righteousness of Jesus Christ. The injustice, if nothing else, of what's being done against him. And then in verse 42. He was saying, Jesus, remember me when you come in your kingdom. This is a man who not many hours before was hurling his own abuses and his insults at Jesus. This is a man who has seen, as far as we know, he has seen nothing more of Jesus than he's seen right here. This is a man who sees a, another person ripped to shreds hung on a cross, hated and despised by all those who are around him, hurling their abuses. And somehow or another, this man sees through all of this and sees a Savior. Doesn't he? He sees a Savior in this man. And so he cries out to him, calls out to him, Jesus Remember me when you come in your kingdom. What in the world? Where did he get this notion from? He's dying on a cross. What are you talking about when he comes in his kingdom? Talking about the fruit of faith. The fruit of conversion. This man's eyes were open to see things that no one could ever have fathomed. And he looks to Jesus Christ. He sees, this man can save me. I'm going to stand before God. This man gives me hope. Jesus, remember me when you come in your kingdom. Tell you what, there weren't many others that day looking and finding a Savior, were there? 
But here's one He did. Jesus saves. And here He saves a man being crucified with Him. A guilty sinner saved by the grace of God. In Jesus' words of comfort, verse 43, and He said to him, Truly I say to you, Today, there's a little bit of comfort right there in that word. Some commentators have brought out it wasn't. It wouldn't be unusual for people to be crucified and be hanging on a cross, still alive for up to four days. Here's a word of comfort today. Today, you will be with me in paradise. Jesus saved that man, didn't he? Amen. Man was saved. Well, when did that take place? Well, I believe the man was converted long before he got to that. He was converted when God transformed his heart and he began to see Jesus. He had never seen him before. You know, the evidence of what he says about Christ, he begins to rebuke this other man. Evidence, this man's heart's been changed. And the fruit of that was to confess his need of Christ. And just very simply, as we, as we, as we insist upon in what I believe biblical reformed theology, is that faith is a gift of God that proceeds and is not the response of God to our repentance. God doesn't save us because we repent and believe. We repent and believe because God has saved us. He has changed our hearts where suddenly, for the first time in our lives, we have the desire and the ability to repent and believe. And the notion that God saves us because in response to our repentance and response to our faith does nothing more than make those good works that come up from within us. And we say, no, there is no good thing within us. There is no good thing here. That God changes the heart. We are converted We are regenerated by the Spirit of God. And the immediate fruit of that is that we we repent of our sin and we embrace Jesus Christ. So there's plenty of good works that accompany this man's faith. Just look at it. The essence of Jesus' incarnation and His life and His death. Remember when he was born, his incarnation, the words of the angel were, you shall call his name Jesus, for he shall save his people from their sin. Jesus said, I have come to seek and to save that which was lost. And while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. In Him we have redemption through His blood, the forgiveness of our trespasses. Ephesians 1 verse 7. Through Jesus and through His death and His life, 
men truly are saved. If any be saved, it is only through Jesus Christ. For those who are saved, it is by faith in His work, not our own. It is what He has done. His saving work. We cannot save ourselves. Christ must save us. So these essential affirmations that His death, His crucifixion is a sovereign work of God. This is God's redemptive work in progress. And it was a substitutionary work. And it was a saving work. These essential affirmations of the Christian faith are increasingly attacked. And in many cases denied by those professing themselves to be Christians in our pluralistic society. You can't be so dogmatic. You've got everything besides Christians live all around you. Tell me what any other religion has to offer that saves men. Whereby men are saved. Show me any other religion that deals with my sin. Because the reality is, if it comes down to good or bad, the scales are are going to be against me. And even if they're not, the fact of the matter is, I haven't always done good. What about this evil? Any evil that I've done? What do I do with that? Well, in Christ, you've a substitute. These were truths that were attacked when Jesus was crucified, folks. This isn't new. How many there in that crowd believed that, that God was accomplishing something here? How many of those believed that they were fulfilling the divine purpose of God, even as they are saying from their mouths the very words of Old Testament prophecy? They're not thinking, okay, guys, let's fulfill the scripture here. If you're the Messiah, save yourself. Okay, that's not, that's not doing that. Who in that crowd believed that Jesus was dying for the sins of others? Who in that crowd thought that by this man's death, anyone would be saved? Folks, we've said it time after time after time from the Scriptures. The message of the cross of Jesus Christ is an offense. It's a stumbling block to the Jew because they cannot imagine a Messiah who suffers and dies as Jesus dies and it is utter folly and foolishness to the Gentile. How can can Jesus die and save anybody? That's it, folks. Jews and Gentiles. You're one or the other. And if you're not in Christ, it's either a stumbling block or it's utter folly. It's nonsense. And if you haven't embraced it, you may not have used the words, but your response is the same. But to those who believe, it's the power of God unto salvation. Attacked as they may be in our society today, as, as attacked as they were even as they took place here, these essential truths, they make, makes them no less true. 
They're not made any less true because just because our society decides this thing this can't be. You can't be such. You can't present any message about God in such exclusive terms. You Christians are arrogant because you think you're the only one going to heaven, folks. <laughs> I tell you what, a true child of God is anything but arrogant because he understands. Apart from the grace of God, I get the same thing everybody else does. It's a saving work through Christ. God's sovereign work by substitutionary death to save all who believe. Essential affirmations. Pretty basic, isn't it? Pretty basic. That God's doing this work. It's a sovereign work. Pretty basic that this is a substitutionary work for the sins of others. Pretty basic. It's a saving work. People are actually saved by what's taking place here. Pretty basic. Pretty fundamental. But it's profound, isn't it? (laughs) It's pretty profound, you think about it. That God accomplishes what He accomplishes through even the deeds of evil men. That God... Accomplishes what he accomplishes by ways beyond beyond knowing that he exchanges by this word, this word we love and we're thankful for justification, imputation. He imputes my sin to Christ and Christ's righteousness to me. You got that? It's pretty profound, isn't it? It's pretty profound that God saves sinners. That God saves people who are just dead set against Him. God saves people who are walking in blindness. God saves people who aren't looking for Him. He just saves them. This is the gospel. This is the message of Jesus' death. His crucifixion. And these are things that we affirm as the people of God. And we rejoice in them. Heavenly Father, we thank You for power of the gospel and Lord it's profound beyond our knowing and we can't begin to to plunge into the depths of all that's here but what little bit we grasp oh Lord it's glorious you're glorious and your work and your deeds are glorious thank you Father that you save sinners Thank you that you save us because you you put our sin on your son and you pour your wrath out on him. Lord, I pray that these truths would ring afresh in our hearts today as I look around and see a room full of many that would clearly profess Christ. Lord, that these things would become sweet and profound anew to us those things which thrill our hearts. Lord, if there be any here that that have not yet received the benefit of what You've done here, Lord, I pray for Your work of grace, that You would work repentance and faith. In Jesus' name, Amen.